Let's take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, and while you're finding that text, I'm going to just spend a moment in prayer with all of us together. Our Father, we come to you now asking you to be a help to us. Asking you to help us here at the end of this Lord's Day to have one final drink of water from your word, one final meal from the meat of the word that would encourage our hearts, that would remind us that Christ is coming soon, that would remind us that our lives are fully in his hand. We thank you, Lord, for the baptisms that we witnessed tonight. What a joy it is to see you continuing to build your kingdom despite the prince of the power of the air. You continue to build your church. I pray that tonight assists that effort in some small way. Thrill our hearts with the glories of the coming kingdom, we pray in the King's name. Amen. Some of you remember this, but before we had electronic devices that told us how far we had to drive somewhere and how long it would take to get there, I remember as a little kid, my dad teaching me about those big green signs on the side of the freeway. It would have a distance to the next few cities, and he taught me how to try to calculate the speed and the distance to come up with an arrival time. Now, that's encouragement, since children don't have a, uh, the, the life experience to intuitively know how long a particular journey may be. And like many of your kids would do, I, I, I would say, are we there yet? And what I didn't know at the time was that not only was it helping me understand how long it would take, my dad knew that it took a long time to make those calculations and it actually killed a bunch of time while I was doing it. But watching those signs count down the distance to a destination brought hope. It brought some anticipation. And I was thinking about that, that as, we were, as I was looking at Isaiah 65, that our current series on the Old Testament witnesses to the coming millennial kingdom, it's like a series of those road signs. Each one seems to get us a little bit closer and make the coming kingdom a little more real. And it provides you as a believer in Christ, it provides the reader with endurance with spiritual stamina with eager expectation and the sign we're looking at this evening isaiah 65 surely is one of the grandest of them all in my studies for the overall millennium series isaiah 65 takes a prominent place in every major work concerning the millennium now to be certain amillennialists have taken the position on isaiah 65 because if you take it at face value it has a lot of difficulties for them, for their contention that there is no intermediate kingdom of Christ between the church age and the final state. And I'll address some of those shortly. But to wrap our minds around Isaiah 65, and and it really is epic in scope, I want to cut this biblical stake into some bite-sized chunks. So here's what they are. I'll give them to you up front. First of all, we're going to do foundational beliefs. Then we're going to do future blessings And then just right at the end to tag off here, we're going to do a fantastic bonus. Foundational beliefs, we'll do five of those. Future blessings, we'll do seven of those. And then one little fantastic bonus at the end. Now just to introduce this a little bit, God's going to open this section of his word delivered to Isaiah with his position toward Gentiles in contrast to unfaithful Jews. And I want to be very clear our position is that this is not a statement of replacement. 
This is not a statement that God is replacing Israel with the church. It's simply a statement affirming the inclusive nature of the Abrahamic covenant that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So I want to say that up front. But let's look first at some foundational beliefs. The first foundational belief, salvation is coming to Gentiles. Salvation is coming to Gentiles. And the foundational beliefs are just kind of a, a, an introduction to the second half of the chapter. Isaiah 65, verse 1. This is God speaking. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call on my name. This can't be speaking of Israel. They would never be identified as the nation that had not called on his name. And so the only other alternative is Gentiles. And notice, by the way, the doctrine of the call of God. That it's God who initiates salvation, not mankind. God describes himself as prepared to be sought by those who didn't ask for him, those who didn't seek him. Reminds us of Romans 3.11, that there is no one who seeks after God. And so God speaks of issuing a call. He says it twice. Here I am. Here I am. Now, to be fair, God has always had an open door to Gentiles. We certainly have the Canaanite Rahab and the Moabite Ruth as examples of God's grace to Gentiles. And Exodus 12.48 allows for a Gentile to join Israel at any time. But now in Isaiah 65.1, God isn't talking about joining Israel, having the Gentiles come to him. This is more the dynamic of God going to them, God going to the Gentile. I think a good illustration comes from the book of Amos. Amos looks ahead to the restoration of Israel and he foresees how God identifies the nations, not as the enemy of God, but as the people of God. Amos 9.11 says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the ancient days. Verse 11, The people of God who are the Jews. Then in verse 12, That they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations who are called by my name. Verse 12 is the people of God who are Gentiles. The Jews and the Gentiles, all saved by the blood of Christ. But because of her rebellion, God would for a time turn away from Israel and turn toward the Gentiles to populate the kingdom with kingdom citizens. Now, when did that transition begin? Well, there's a very specific point in the Gospels that we can point to. Matthew 12, 22 records an instance when Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who couldn't speak and was also blind, and Jesus completely delivered him of, of all of his oppression The Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. And just so you know, that was not an offhanded comment. That was the official position of the leadership of Israel. And so a shift begins to take place. Jesus refuted that ridiculous claim with brilliant theological logic and he ends with a condemnation of Israel's leadership. Matthew 12, 32, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. He goes on to say, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, right here, 
strategically placed in the Gospel of Matthew is a little incident. It's, it's a transitional incident. This is a time when Jesus was told that his mother and his brothers were seeking to speak to him. And Jesus used that as a teaching opportunity. And he asked, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he gestured toward all of his followers. And he named them as his mother and brothers. And he declared, whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. The bigger message here is, That those in the family of God are not just the ones I'm related to by blood, he's saying. The Jews, it's anyone who submits to salvation offered by the Father through the Son. And all of a sudden, at this point, Jesus' entire teaching style shifts completely. Beginning in Matthew 13, he begins to teach in parables. He first gives the famous parable of the four types of soil. And, And this was new, this was brand new information, and it was mysterious and So Jesus' disciples came to him afterward and they asked why he was suddenly speaking in these stories, in these parables. And he said in Matthew 13, 11, Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And then he quotes Isaiah 6 to declare that God is turning away from the unbelieving national Israel because Israel has gone away from him. They've turned away from him. They've accused him of getting his power from Satan. And he says, that's it. I draw the line there. And in fact, Jesus will terminate or fire the current leadership of Israel. Speaking to his disciples in Matthew 19, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He just said, disciples, you're the new leaders of Israel in the regeneration. That's a word for the millennial kingdom. But now in the church age where we're living, it's not that God is drawing Gentiles to Israel to receive salvation. He's going to the Gentiles to give them salvation. In the old covenant, Exodus 12, 48 said, if a sojourner sojourns with you, if he comes to you in Israel. But in the new covenant, Jesus said, go therefore, go to whom? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So in Isaiah 65, 1, from Isaiah's standpoint, that verse is future. From our standpoint, we're in it. We're in the middle of Isaiah 65, verse 1. It's the second foundational belief. God will not tolerate rebellious Israel. God will not tolerate rebellious Israel. God turns his attention now from the future elect Gentiles to the present day rebellious Jews in Isaiah's day. The people who ultimately ended up in exile because of their covenant betrayal, their disloyalty. Verse 2, God still speaks. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. That's an interesting phrase. God saying, I have spread out my hands all day long. This is a phrase associated with prayer, with supplication, with beseeching. When Israel should have been seeking God, instead he's having to seek her. And the people have fallen into syncretism, mixing uh, false religion with true to make their own brand. In verse 3, 
He describes them as a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on on bricks. Sacrifices were to happen in the temple, not in gardens, not in your backyard. This is probably a reference to the high places. Earlier in Isaiah, places where oak trees grow were seen as holy places. Sacrificing to pagan gods, probably with some, some mixture of worship of Yahweh thrown in. They were burning incense on bricks or making offerings on bricks. These are homemade altars, not prescribed by God and not approved by God. By the way, we hold here at Grace Bible Church to something called the regulative principle that says that we worship only in the way that God prescribes. Apparently, God holds to the regulative principle also. Because we don't get to make up how we worship. But these people took it a step further. They engaged in necromancy, calling upon the dead. Verse 4, these are people who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places. They flaunted their distaste for the word of God by purposefully violating the law with no regard for holiness at all. Verse 4 continues, they eat swine's flesh and the broth of offensive meat is in their pots they openly violated leviticus 11 7 deuteronomy 14 8 god's people were to demonstrate that they were different they're set apart they're unique the dietary laws were one of the ways that they did that under the old covenant but they kept using meat beyond the allowable time as dictated in leviticus 19 they were unconcerned with the lord's standards they they just made it up Oh, but here's the irony about these people. Not only were they flagrantly disobedient, but they thought themselves a cut above others for flaunting what they perceived as freedom to do anything. Verse 5, these are people who say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. It's where we get our phrase, holier than thou so ironic that the most spiritually misled are generally the most spiritually arrogant. They are spiritually elitist because they've made up a false system of worship and then looked down on those who don't participate. And how does God feel about this? The second half of verse 5, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. You ever sit by a campfire and no matter where you go, the wind always blows it in your face? God's saying, you're a smoking campfire that's blowing in my face. It's disgusting. So here's God's reaction to those who pretend to be his followers, but in name only. Verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom, both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says Yahweh, because they have burned incense on the mountains and reproached me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. This is just a picturesque way of saying, Every way you can think of to be judged, I will do all of them. Worshiping on the mountains, the hilltops, the high places. This is nothing more than an attempt to get the attention of Canaanite gods. By the way, who else went to a high place to try to reach closer to the gods? The builders of the Tower of Babel. And they're doing it all over again. And so God will pour into their bosom payment it's a, it's a word that means a wage that you earned for a work that you've done. That that's the coming fate of all who reject God's grace and love. There's a third foundational belief. 
God will save a portion of Israel. God will save a portion of Israel. In verses 2 through 7, we see unfaithful Israel, but this doesn't mean that God is finished with them as a nation. You can't stop at the end of verse 7. Verse 8, thus, thus says Yahweh, as the new wine is found in the cluster and one says, do not make it a ruin for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my slaves in order to not make all of them a ruin. I will bring forth a seed from Jacob and the possessor of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall possess it and my slaves will dwell there. Sharon will be their pasture land for flocks in the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. Verse 8 here draws on imagery of judgment found a few chapters earlier in chapter 63. In chapter 63, we see a picture of the coming Messiah judging the nations. I have trodden the wine trough alone and the peoples, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my clothes. Now, here in chapter 65, we're back at the wine press of the judgment of God. The wrath of God is about to be, it's, it's right on the verge of being expressed as the crushing of the bad fruit, the crushing of what Isaiah 5 calls the worthless grapes, the wild grapes, the sour grapes brought forth in the vineyard of God. But just as God is about to crush Israel, There's a wait. There's new wine in the cluster. What is the new wine? Super ripened grapes would at times start to ooze juices even before the crushing process began. And that juice was actually specially valued and it was called new wine. It was the freshest that you could get. And so while God will judge most ethnic Jews, some will be saved. The new wine, which cannot be poured into the old wineskins of the old covenant, but must come under the new covenant. Verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 pictures a great homecoming. Verse 10 pictures peace and provision and rest from turmoil from the, for the remnant of God's chosen people. Verse 9 is People specific, a seed from Jacob is a word that means descendants. This is in contrast to verse 1, the people who are not called by my name. And verse 10 is place specific. The place of the peace of God's people is Sharon. Sharon is a 32 mile long by an average of 11 mile wide strip of land in Israel. It's a coastal plain with the Mediterranean Ocean on the, on the west and the coastal highlands on the right, on the, the east, the soil in this plain is deep and it's rich. There are orange trees, grape vineyards, olive orchards, orchards that are grow, growing beautifully there. And Sharon is very famous for its glorious wildflowers. What Solomon 2.1 speaks of, the rose of Sharon. And they're in the valley of Achor. This is a valley near Jericho. This is named after Achan, the Israelite who was stoned to death for his rebellion during the conquest. And it means the valley of trouble, Joshua 7, 26. And it came, though, to be a symbol of end times hope, that, that change is coming, that, that there's, there are better things coming down the road. Hosea 2 speaks of the coming restoration of Israel in verse 15. Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, 
as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. By the way, Sharon is primarily in the north. Achor is in the south. God is promising a reunified nation. So God is specific as to the people and the places. As I've said many times before, I would want to be very, very careful. I would want to beware of redefining national Israel away. Because this is an affront to the faithful, steadfast love of the Lord. Here's a fourth foundational belief. Judgment is coming to the unrepentant. Judgment is coming to all the unrepentant. Now we have a contrast to those who will return, who will come to faith. Verse 11, But you who forsake Yahweh, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny. This is pointing to a time before the exile of the Jews to Babylon, using them as an example of what happens to those who will not believe and, and will, who refuse to repent of sin. These are the ones who forsake the Lord. They forget His holy mountain, Jerusalem uh, generally, and specifically temple worship. And God says they set a table for fortune. In your Bible, fortune is probably capitalized. It's a proper name, Gad in Hebrew. It's associated with the description of the Canaanite god Baal, Baal Gad in Joshua eleven seventeen, And so they've set a table for fortune, a false god. They've, they fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. This is another proper name. It's a, the Hebrew word for, for the god many, M-E-N-I. Baal Gad and many were gods worshipped among the Semitic peoples and the Greeks and the Romans had new names for them. Jupiter and Venus. And Isaiah pictures the people of Israel courting these gods, setting a table for them, giving wine to them, sacrificing to them. But the prophet declares that God alone is the sole controller of destinies and fortunes of men and nations. To worship good luck or good fortune is a denial of the sovereignty of the one true living God. Sometimes people question the goodness of God when the concept of hell and judgment is brought up. You know what I've never heard though? I've never heard an adequate answer to the question, what do you do with people who refuse to worship God no matter what for all eternity? Well, God has the answer to that. What else can God do with people who insist on occupying a land that belongs to Him and belongs to His faithful people and yet worship other gods? Verse 12, I will destine you for the sword. This is a play on words. I will many you for the sword. You worship many, I will many you. I will destine you for the sword and all of you will bow down to the slaughter because I called and you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear and you did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I was not pleased. And here's a fifth foundational belief and this begins to transition us toward the millennial kingdom. God is bringing a new society. God is bringing a new society. We come now to another series of contrasts of the, of the righteous and the wicked in a very self-explanatory section. Verse 13, Therefore says Lord Yahweh, 
Behold, my slaves will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my slaves will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my slaves will be glad, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my slaves will shout joyfully with a merry heart, but you will cry out with a pained heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and Lord Yahweh will put you to death, but my slaves will be called by another name. Now, this is clearly a contrast, but we do arrive at an interpretive issue here. Is this speaking of the contrast of God's people and those who reject Him in a before and after sense? That those who reject God will be cursed before the coming kingdom of Messiah and then God's people will abound in blessing? Or is it speaking of how God will deal with two different people, the righteous and the wicked, in the coming kingdom of Messiah? Now, you might be tempted to say, wait a minute, when Christ returns, all sin is eradicated, right? Well, when Christ returns, certainly all the living unsaved will be judged. They'll be executed for their rebellion during the great tribulation. Jesus himself said this when he described the sheep and the goat judgment in Matthew 25. But there will be living survivors of the great tribulation who have followed Christ, tribulation saints. And to these, Jesus will say, describing himself as the coming king, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And what will these survivors do, these saved believers? They're not yet resurrected because they haven't died yet. What are they going to do? They're going to obey the Lord and they're going to marry and have children and grandchildren all with sin natures. And so Christ will reign on earth. He'll rule over an essentially Christian society. But we know that sin will still be a problem. Zechariah 14 speaks of this time when nations will bring their offerings to the Lord in Jerusalem. But Christ issues a warning that any nation who disobeys this command will be punished with drought. So sin will be present. It certainly won't dominate like it does now. Why won't it dominate? Well, Satan, whom 1 Peter 5 says, currently prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan will be, according to Revelation 21 through 3, bound in the terrible abyss, the bottomless pit. Uh Uh-oh, until when? Until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Just a little side note. Later on in our series on the millennium, I'm going to do a whole series as to why Satan is released one more time. But that'll be about six months from now. So what's he going to do when he's released? Revelation 20, verse 7, when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So there is reason to believe that Isaiah 65, 13, 14, and 15 speaks of the contrast of the saved and the unsaved in a new society in which the agenda of the king is always first, always dominant. We already saw that the Lord would withhold rain from those who refused to worship him. 
And we see these contrasts. There's a contrast in provision. Verse 13, my slaves will eat, but you'll be hungry. My slaves will drink, you'll be thirsty. There's a contrast in disposition. In verse 14, my slaves will shout joyfully with a merry heart, but you will cry out with a pained heart. And there's a contrast in designation. Who, how are people named? Verse 15, you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones. And, the, and Lord Yahweh will put you to death, but my slaves who are called by another name, the rebels will become equal to a curse word. The servants of God will receive another name. One, listen, from Isaiah's vantage point, a name never yet given to a believer. Some think that this new name for those who love the Lord, the new name for Jews who love Christ and Gentiles who love Christ, a name that they share. Some think that this is the name given in Acts 11.26. It's a Greek word that means little Christs. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So there's a contrast in provision, a contrast in disposition, a contrast in designation. But whether or not this is speaking of a contrast before and after the coming kingdom or a contrast during the coming kingdom, the lesson is clear. Be on the right side. Be the ones blessed by God. Verse 16, Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former distresses are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. Those are foundational beliefs to really understand where we're headed with the millennial kingdom. But let's consider now the future blessings. The future blessings. And we immediately hit another interpretive challenge. Isaiah is going to apparently compress two different time periods into one vision. First, he says, verse 17, For behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come upon the heart. We can relate to this. Our New Testament minds go immediately to Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. But we run into a challenge here, because chronologically, new heavens and new earth happens a thousand years after the kingdom of Christ, after the release and rebellion and judgment of Satan, after the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, in which all the lost of all the ages are thrown into the lake of fire. Now, Revelation 22.3 says the curse of sin is lifted. There's no more curse. But in the millennial time before this, we've already seen that sin will still exist. And in fact, the rest of Isaiah 65 confirms that while a glorious new society is abounding, the effects of sin still survive. So why does Isaiah compress these two events? Let me give you two reasons. First of all, God's revelation isn't complete. It's not complete. We don't get the full detailed picture until the New Testament. I mean, God revealed a lot to Isaiah. I suspect if he had revealed everything to Isaiah that he also revealed to the Apostle John, Isaiah's brain would have just blown. I don't know whether it would have happened. But the revelation isn't complete. Isaiah was not told this is a thousand-year kingdom. We're not told that until Revelation 20, six times, by the way, just to make sure we get it. Isaiah is simply looking forward to a day when Messiah reigns on the earth. Israel is restored. Sin is brought under control. For him, that is a new heaven and a new earth. There's a second reason 
He compresses these two events. God has already set a precedent for revealing to Isaiah two different time periods compressed into one statement. God revealed to Isaiah that the Messiah was coming. And in one statement, we have both the first and the second coming of Messiah with the current church age completely left out. I've pointed this out previously, but just to reiterate, Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Merry Christmas, first coming of Christ. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. Merry millennium, second coming of Christ. All in one statement. So we can safely say that between verses 17 and 18, just like between to us a child is born and the government will rest on his shoulders, is the current age. And verse 18 now begins to describe this initial thousand-year kingdom of Christ on earth. Now just a little side note here to address a theological disagreement. From verses 17 to 25, all millennialists who believe that the kingdom of Christ is happening now on earth, they primarily see this section as referring only to the eternal state. And here are some of the reasons they give. They would say that the new heavens and new earth of verse 17 must refer to the eternal state since it does elsewhere. I've already addressed that. They would say that no weeping or crying, as we'll see in verse 19, is the same language used of the eternal state in Revelation 21.4. That's true, but I'm going to take that argument uh, down just a little bit in a moment. And then they would say that the conditions of Isaiah 65 are described as permanent. Verse 18, be joyful and rejoice forever in what I create. Uh, that's a, actually a misnomer because when I'm in the millennial kingdom, I'm going to be rejoicing and I will rejoice forever both in the millennium and all time after. So that one is, is the easiest to perhaps undo. There are some problems with this view, though, that this is the eternal state. In verse 20, death still continues. Ah, millennialists see this as symbolic of eternal life in the final state. That it's a, it's a symbol. But verse 20 says the youth will die. At the age of 100, that's not symbolic. And as we've said numerous times, you can't simply say something is symbolic because a literal interpretation messes up your theological system. And certainly you can't just assert that something is symbolic without a reason from the text. Here's the reason that the majority of the the most well-known all-millennial theologians put forward. They say that Isaiah's readers cannot grasp the concept of eternal life and so more limited terms are used to describe it. I think Isaiah's readers would say, excuse me? Well, there's a small problem with this. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Isaiah 25.8 destroys that argument. And I'd actually like to quote Dr. Matt Wehmeyer. He explains it this way. He says, the most glaring weakness of this argument is that Isaiah 25.8 indicates that the original audience of Isaiah's prophecy could indeed understand what it means that Yahweh will abolish death in such a way that his people will no longer die. In describing the joy and glory of the eternal state, Isaiah writes, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his, reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." So you can't say, well, they just couldn't understand it. 
They go back a couple of dozen chapters and they obviously can. Now, we've dealt with that issue. Let's look at the future blessings as we see the remainder of chapter 65. The future blessings, first of all, a vindicated world capital. A vindicated world capital. For centuries, Jerusalem has been the location of strife and conflict. Anyone can see that Jerusalem remains at the center of world affairs. It's been said that statesmen and dignitaries, when the problem of Israel and Jerusalem is brought up, many of them just groan and shake their heads because it's, it's such a hotbed of conflict all the time. But now Jerusalem will be vindicated, the capital of Christ's kingdom. Verse 18, but be joyful and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for joy. The city will be a joy to the whole world. The people of the city will be a joy to the world because they're living proof that God can make a promise to an old man and 4,000 years later keep that promise. A promise to Abraham that his people would occupy this land. Jerusalem and their people become living proof that God can make a promise to a young king saying a descendant from your body will reign on the throne of this city that you've taken from my name and have it happen a vindicated world capital. There's a second blessing. A model of kingdom happiness. A model of kingdom happiness. Jerusalem becomes the model, the paragon of God's happiness. God's own happiness. That God will rejoice in Jerusalem. Verse 19 I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be joyful in my people and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the voice of crying. What is the picture of God in Jerusalem? It is the Son of God, the King of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords that Zephaniah 3.17 says will sing and shout and dance over His people in Jerusalem. He rejoices. Isn't this different? Isn't this different than the sad lament that Jesus gave? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. Verse 19, there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the voice of crying. Jesus wept over Jerusalem and it may be that verse 19 is saying Jesus will never again weep over Jerusalem. But now God's own longing has been fulfilled and to answer the critics of an intermediate millennial kingdom as being disproven by the statement of no weeping and no tears, assuming this does speak of the people, a simple observation of the text would show an important detail. Details matter. Verse 19 says that in her, Jerusalem, the voice of weeping and the voice of crying will no longer be heard. The similar reference I mentioned a moment ago in Revelation 21.4 that speaks of no no more crying, no more weeping, it is not specific to New Jerusalem. It's generalized to the whole world. And it's accompanied by the declaration that there will no longer be any death. This is not the case in the Millennial Kingdom in Isaiah 65. But in millennial Jerusalem, when Christ is present there in the walls of that city, never will there be a single cause to weep or to cry, but rather cause to rejoice. Can you imagine this? 
Can you imagine a city, let's call it the size of Bakersfield, that you can walk down the middle of the street in the middle of the night and every person that comes from the shadow of an alley, every person that comes at you uh, in, in clothing that makes you think that you're maybe about to die, every single person, every single one of them says, isn't it great to serve the king? Praise the Lord. Total safety, total delight, total worship. There's a third blessing, future blessing, the end of infant mortality. The end of infant mortality. Verse 20 begins, no longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days. In Isaiah's day in the ancient Near East, a high-risk birth was likely to end in death for the child and often for the mother as well. Premature birth, a child born with an emergency medical problem that might easily be solved today or even just the trauma of a difficult birth almost always was going to end tragically. There simply wasn't the medical means to prevent this. This is a tremendous quality of this kingdom time. Babies are still being born, every single one of them healthy and vital and strong. Now, why is this mentioned? Why is this here? It seems like a relatively small detail. I think we can reasonably connect this to the original command given to mankind to be fruitful and to multiply. This is how it is supposed to be. Every pregnancy resulting in the healthy, live birth of a beautiful baby, which, by the way, means the end of miscarriages, the end of all abortion. Every pregnancy will be a healthy child. The world's population is going to explode with fruitfulness. And by the way, with extended lifespans, it means that a woman may be in childbearing age, perhaps for centuries. There won't be family trees. There's going to be family forests. This is my great, 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 great uncle so-and-so, and and he's actually three years younger than me. You know, I mean, it's going to be crazy. What a blessing, though, as it was supposed to be. Here's a fourth blessing. The end of tragic shortened lifespans. The end of tragic shortened lifespans. Verse 20 continues, Or an old man who does not fulfill his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Even the rebellious will enjoy God's longer lifespans in His grace, and should He judge one, it will seem a shame. Oh, he was only 100 when he died. He was a mere child. By the way, long life is also implied in verse 22. They will not build in another inhabit. They will not plant in another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. What does it mean that God's people will wear out the work of their hands? It seems to mean that they'll outlive the things that they make. To wear something out, it has the idea of using something to the complete maximum to enjoy all the things to the total limit. A man can plant a maple tree and watch it grow for 400 years. He can plant a ponderosa pine and watch it grow for over 500 years. Once in my life, and and I know it was a complete fluke and it was a manufacturer's error, but once in my life, I broke a hammer using it. You know, I had to say, ha, I lived longer than you did because that hammer should have outlived me. The men will outlive, they will wear out the things that they make. What a blessing. Here's a fifth future blessing. The beginning of a thriving economy. The beginning of a thriving economy, verse 21, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. 
if you're in this stage of life as a young person, young couple, or maybe you remember the stage of life, you remember what it was like to try to get your first home loan? They, they ask you questions like, now, why should you get to breathe air again? And what, why, do you, why should we allow you to exist? And you just felt about this big. You're like, I'm sorry I exist, but can I please have a house? I need some place to live. Not in the kingdom. God's people will build houses and have farms and orchards and provision. The wealth of the nations will be brought to Jerusalem. And we're going to come back to this in later messages to the specifics of the thriving economy. But suffice to say that when righteousness prevails, prosperity happens. Here's the sixth blessing. The end of invasion and danger. The end of invasion and danger from which Israel has suffered for so long. And this is very poignant to us even right now. Because everyone around them wants Israel to cease to exist, they have to maintain a massively effective fighting force. A few years back, a reporter wrote a compelling article called Why No One Wants to Mess with Israel's Air Force. They have to constantly protect themselves, and by many independent measures, no one is better at protecting themselves than Israel, and we're seeing that in the news every day right now. But not in the coming kingdom. Verse 22, they will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. What, what does that speak of? That speaks of the horror of spending years building your home, building your estate, planting your vineyards, waiting that five or six years before the first crop. And then invaders come and they take it all away and take your life. That won't happen again. Verse 23, they will not labor in vain or bear children for terror, for they are the seed of those blessed by Yahweh and their offspring with them. They can relax. They won't have to worry that their children or grandchildren may be slaughtered as has happened so many times in history, even in the past couple of months. And here's a seventh blessing. One that's important enough that this is the second time Isaiah mentions it. A change in animal nature. A change in animal nature. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil nor act corruptly in all my holy mountains, says Yahweh. This aspect of the kingdom must be important because Isaiah is repeating himself from chapter 11. There's no reason to suddenly spiritualize this and make this figurative. We see figurative language in the Bible when it gives us good reason to say it's figurative. But nothing is impossible about this. There's nothing ridiculous about this. This is simply a partial return back to the time of the Garden of Eden. In other words, Adam didn't worry that he was about to be eaten by a lion. Zechariah 14 says there will be massive topographical changes to the earth. We've seen already massive changes to the lifespans on earth. So a change in animals going from carnivores to herbivores, that's not impossible. And in fact, one of the curses during the Great Tribulation, the fourth seal judgment, includes 25% of the world's population being killed, Revelation 6-8, with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. And you might say, oh, that, that doesn't happen today very much. You know, in 2018, there was a study that showed that the level of people dying from animal attacks has not gone down since they kept records. No matter what we have, no matter how many guns we have, no matter how many uh, barricades we have, the animals still kill us. 
By the way, verse 25 is very specific. Dust will be the serpent's food. That doesn't sound like a blessing. The generally frowned upon dangerous snakes of the world will no longer pose a threat. But I want you to know this also. This gives us another mark in favor of this being an intermediate kingdom. The serpent crawling in the dust is part of what? It's part of the curse of sin. Genesis 3.14, Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. The snake, the serpent, the instrument of Satan to tempt Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, apparently still gets no reprieve from that curse. Now, no reason is given here, but in the timeline of eschatology, of end times, Satan at this time is bound, but he's not completely judged. We read that from Revelation 20. He'll be released for a short time at the end to deceive many unbelievers, but his final defeat hasn't happened yet. That seems to be the same case with the earthly representative of Satan, the serpent. He's bound, he can't hurt, he can't bite, but he's still the lowest of the low. Wolf and lamb, you graze together. Yay! Lion, you may eat straw like the ox, so you don't have to kill anything anymore. Yay! Serpent, you're still in the dust. Oh. (laughs) But they will do no evil, nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain. Well, we've looked at the foundational beliefs and the future blessings. I told you earlier we'd have a fantastic bonus. I couldn't really make this fit any category, and so I just decided to make it its own category Remember, the kingdom will consist of resurrected saints who rule alongside Christ. Revelation 20, verse 4, that's us. And of the non-resurrected descendants of the survivors of the great tribulation. We can all still call upon the name of the Lord. We will still be dependent on Him for all things. But something's going to be missing. Something we have to get really good at in this life. How many times in Scripture are we exhorted to wait on the Lord, to hope in the Lord? Psalm 27, 14, hope in Yahweh. Be strong, let your heart take courage. Hope in Yahweh. Psalm 31, 24, be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who wait for Yahweh. Psalm 33, 20, our soul is patient for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 40, verse 1, I hoped earnestly for Yahweh. Psalm 130, verse 5, I hope for Yahweh. My soul does hope. And many, many others. And how many times in Psalms do we see the the cry of the psalmist saying, How long, O Lord? And in fact, we would say that really one of the definitions, one of the core definitions of a mature believer in Christ is one who has learned to be content in the face of a situation in which it seems that God is doing nothing. Learning to wait. This is such a normal part of the Christian life. That learning to wait on the Lord is a core principle of living in this world. And this is really the greatest challenge for us. You know, even in heaven, even in heaven during the great tribulation when the martyred saints saints cry out for justice, Revelation 6 says they're comforted, but you know what they're told to do? Wait. So we've gotten used to that. That's a fact of our Christian life. We understand that when we pray, God will certainly answer our prayers. But if you're mature in the Lord, you never make a demand on God as to when. 
because you know that you're going to wait. Hebrews 11 gives a list of saints who were great because they still trusted God even though they died before their prayers were answered. But what about in the coming kingdom? Apparently, waiting on the Lord is going to be a thing of the past. Look at verse 24. And it will be that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. This is an interesting way of saying this. It's basically saying that God will interrupt your beseeching of him. Lord, I really, oh, thank you. What a glorious kingdom that will be. What a glorious time to live with our Savior face to face. Never to wait on the Lord again. So I think that on our journey toward the coming kingdom, we have lots of road signs. We have lots of signs that it's ticking down, it's coming to encourage us and to assure us of the glories that are to come. I like Isaiah 65 because it takes me out of this world and into the next. And I hope it does that for you as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this little glimpse into the glories of the future kingdom. Oh, how we will sing and shout and celebrate and dance with each other. And if there is weeping, it'll be just tears of joy and delight and just disbelief that we've actually arrived in the kingdom. Lord, I pray for each one hearing this message, each one here, that if tomorrow holds pain, holds discouragement, tomorrow holds dread for them, that you would help them to look beyond tomorrow to the age that is to come. When all weeping, all crying is gone. Help us in the meantime to be faithful servants to proclaim the gospel of Christ so that we might be part of the great work of bringing as many into this kingdom as we possibly can. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name.